Ruth chapter 3. The title of this sermon is Putting Your Faith to the Test. Um, I want to do a quick recap for your mind of where we've been in Ruth. You know, Ruth is a story. Uh, It's different than, say, Romans, where, you know, we're kind of learning truth systematically. Ruth is a narrative. It's God's word that's given through this short story. And so it's good for us to kind of keep the big picture in mind as we read it. It's so cool God gives us his word in many different ways. Um, We could sum up the book of Ruth this way. God works his saving plans through difficult circumstances. God works his saving plans through difficult circumstances circumstances. And we'll see that in our text this morning. But I want us to remember how this starts. So we we have this man, he brings his wife, two sons out of the promised land. You never want to leave the promised land, but they did. And they they went to a foreign land and his sons got married. And then he and his sons died. And this woman, Naomi, was left a widow and she was left with two daughters-in-law. And in that, we, we learn the biblical practice of lament, of bringing our questions and sorrows to God, even when they're raw, even when we're not in a good spot. We saw Naomi was, was pretty bitter. She was in a raw place, but she brought those things before God. And then we see Ruth, one of these daughters of, daughter-in-law of Naomi, do this unexpected thing. She sticks with Naomi. She could have just gone back to her people, found another husband, but for whatever reason, she saw something in Naomi, in Naomi's history, her God, and she was like, I'm staying with you. And we see this, this, the nature of true love, sacrificial love that seeks the good of others. The biblical word for that is hesed, this loving kindness. I'm sticking with you. We saw that kind of love. Then we see these two women return to the promised land and return to the people of God. And we learned about the value of turning back to God, turning in repentance to God, returning to the, the places and spaces and practices that get us in God's presence around God's people. Then we see God kind of quickly begin to bless this woman, Ruth, and we see her find favor in this field of a godly man named Boaz, which is astounding because this was in the time when people just did what was right in their own eyes, but there's this God-fearing man who protected her and provides food and protection for her, and, and we learned a bit about what it is to be a biblical godly man and a biblical godly woman. And then last week, we see, we see Ruth obey this... Um, I don't know what you would call it. Like uh, Naomi said, hey, go to that man and see if he would take us in. See if he would be our family's redeemer. See if if he would be willing to marry you and provide children for my husband's family line. And so Ruth does, and and this man agrees to become her redeemer. And we've, we've already seen how God's wisdom and ways are so much different than our ways. We would not have written this kind of story for our own lives. And, and we would not use these difficult circumstances if we could choose, but we see the hand and loving kindness of God. And, and we also see the way he works through his people. He, he extends his loving kindness through his people. Now, as we're, as we're in chapter three this morning, we're gonna finish chapter three. Um, we're gonna notice a few things in the text, specifically about testing, when our faith is tested, when our character is tested, when our obedience is tested. Uh, so let's read uh, verse six to the end, verse six to 18, and then we'll pray and then get into it together. Ruth chapter three, verse six. So she, that's Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet... There is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. 
But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word that is perfect, that revives the soul. By it, we are warned, and by it, we come to know you, God. By it, you lead us and guide us. It's a lamp unto our feet. It shows us the way we are to go. And and above all, Lord, we thank you that your word reveals Jesus. And we ask this morning, Holy Spirit, that you as the teacher of all things would show us Jesus we would see the loving kindness of Jesus towards us. And that we, Lord, would learn to love you and to walk with you. So Lord, help me just be faithful to what is in your word and and nothing else, Lord. Remove anything that is not of you, Lord. And would you speak to your people through your living, active, perfect word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we know... Um, that one of the most difficult aspects of knowing God, of walking with God, is that he tests us. He allows challenges to come to test our faith. Scripture is, is clear on this. Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous. And in Genesis 22, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And if you know the the context of this story, this is one of the most excruciating tests in the Bible where God asked Abraham to give uh, God back his son who he waited for 25 years. And, And we see this is even, and this is so good. What is Abraham's response? Should be our response when God wants to test us. Here I am. And in fact, it's these tests that, that, that God uses as, as means to purify and strengthen and, and, and make us more like Jesus. Uh, look what Job said, Job 23. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job viewed the circumstances in his life as in the hands of God being tried, being tested, that he would come out pure as gold. Psalm 66, similar idea. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. If you know how how they try and test precious metals, it's uh, refined by fire and the impurities rise to the surface and they're taken out and and that, that gold is more precious. That metal, that silver is more precious. The same thing happens with our faith. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter one. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then then one more time, look at in James chapter one, we know this verse, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, that word's mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Oh, for us to just experience the crown of life and to be with God forever, we we will be there. But before then, we will will be tested. Our faith, our walk with God will be tested. 
Uh, that word in Greek, testing, is dokeo, and it means this, approved genuineness, examined and approved, proven, proven worth, trustworthy. It's like if you, if you have a piece of equipment, it's been used a hundred times. You're like, I know it's going to work. It's, it's not like you get this new thing and you've never used it and you're like, I hope it works. It's like my faith, I, it's been tested, it's been used, it's been through the fire and it's still here. I, it's been proven genuine. And to mature in our faith is to walk through these tests and to come out the other side with deeper, more refined, more purified faith. Uh, one last verse, Paul uh, says this to us, the church, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? That has kind of a, a shocking ending to it, like, wait, I could fail this test? And, and, and what he's saying there is when even Christians, we are to test ourselves, we are to examine ourselves. And sometimes the tests in our lives may reveal that Christ is not in us. Maybe you have friends in your life who you thought were Christians and you walked with them and then something happened, a testing happened and, and then they wandered away. It's that testing exposes if Christ is even really truly in you, if there's any gold that remains or if it all burns away. This is what Jesus was getting at in the parable of the soils. So some people receive the word of God with joy and they say amen and they're worshiping with their hands up and they're all in and then the scorching heat comes. And it says the roots didn't go down deep. There were these rocks in there. And, and when the testing came, it withered. It's simply part of what it is to walk with Jesus in this world, these tests, these fires, that sun scorching. And, and what happens to a true Christian when they are tested is this wonderful gift called assurance that when we walk through a test and we still trust Jesus, it just increases this like, I must really be a Christian because I'm still here loving Jesus. When we walk through suffering, when we walk through tests and we make it, it's proving that Jesus Christ is in us. And let me say this right off the bat. If we fail the tests and who hasn't, there is hope. There's Jesus. We all fall short in these tests. We have not a single person besides Jesus has proven himself worthy and pure. And so if we are in that experience where we have fallen short, we go to Jesus, a gracious savior whose blood was shed for imperfect people like us to forgive us and purify us and then gives us the Holy Spirit and a new heart that longs to walk with him, that will truly stay with him because that faith is genuine. And the entire book of Ruth can be seen as, as testing on its characters. Naomi faced test, Ruth faced test, Boaz faced test. And we even see all three of those in this chapter this morning. And so uh, we're gonna look at this text in three tests, okay, this morning. That's kind of the way we're gonna help flesh out what is in this test. And, and the first one is this. And it's a test Ruth faced and it's one that we face as Christians. The test of risky obedience. Will we obey even when it could cost us something. That's, that's kind of the whole theme of, we see it in verses one through nine. And, and I wanna go through this quickly. This is what Adam largely covered last week. He laid really important groundwork. If you weren't here, um, definitely hear it. He brought a lot of clarity to like some of the strange, controversial interpretations of what really was going on. He helped us see nothing sinful or scandalous happened in the encounter with Ruth and Boaz in the middle of the night. And he highlighted for us the uncommon love Ruth displays as she goes, as she obeys Naomi, even risks so much to do so. And so I just want us to see this really quick before we move on to the next two. And, and just think about this. It's hard to really emphasize the kind of risks Ruth is taking, okay? She's a widow. She has 
Her only other family member around is another widow, her mother-in-law. She has no official job. She's been shown mercy by this man. And if he rejects her, all chances are that he's going to say, and by the way, stop working for, you know, like stop taking all of my grain for free. She's risking her livelihood. She's risking her social status. She sneaks up on the guy. This is the strategy in the middle of the night when he's asleep and just uncovers him and lays down and then straight up proposes to him. Like this is risky crazy stuff she's doing. And, and even notice this, Naomi said to Ruth, go to him, uncover his feet, and then that's it and see what he does. Ruth takes it one step further, uncovers his feet. And when he wakes up, she just says, hey, redeem me, marry me. Like that wasn't in the plan. Like she's clearly taking a huge risk in what she's doing. Notice this is a woman proposing to a man. This is a younger person proposing to an older person. This is a mere field worker proposing to the field owner. This is a Moabite foreigner proposing to an Israelite. She is risking so much. And she's doing that because she's displaying obedience and trust to Naomi and steadfast, uncommon love to Naomi. And and I want us to notice this, this is such a, amazing nug. There are so many just gems in the, in like the intricacies of the language of the short story. When, when Ruth says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant in verse nine, spread your wings over your servant. There's there's a triple meaning going on. Okay. First of all, the word wings is literally the, the word for the corner of your garment. And she's like, Hey, I know you're uncovered, but I'm laying here in the cold too. Will you literally please cover me? But the second thing she is saying is that phrase, spread your wings over me. It's a Jewish expression that means, would you marry me? Would you, this is the, the, the expression when a man takes a woman in and marries her. It symbolizes his protection and his covering. So she's like, will you literally cover me up? Will you marry me? And then third, this phrase is often used towards God who Israel takes shelter under his wings. We see this throughout the scriptures. One example is in Psalm 91, verse one through four. He who dwells in the shelter of the most high will abide in the shadow of the almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, that means uh, feathers, and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. What she's doing here to Boaz is in many senses what she did to Naomi. She's saying, Boaz, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Will you marry me? This extreme statement. And church, that, that we would risk the way Ruth did, that we would be bold, that we would love with the kind of risky love that Ruth showed, that we would risk our social status and financial status for the kingdom of God, that we would risk our reputations and our evangelism to our neighbors and the nations. And then let me just say this. If you have failed that test of risky obedience, as I so often do, let's turn to Jesus together, who didn't fail this test, who didn't just risk his life, he gave his life for, for people who, who maybe were cowards like you and I, who not just like Ruth left his country and, and went to the extreme of a grain pile in the middle of the night. Jesus left heaven and went to the cross for our sins and our fear and our cowardice, for our disobedience. Let's first look to Jesus, but then church, let's obey Jesus. Let's receive his forgiveness and then be filled with his spirit, and then obey his word, even if it's risky. Would we risk, please God, would we be a church that is risky for the kingdom of God, that's willing to lose something, because we trust God. We trust he's at work. Now, the second test we see is the test of integrity. We see that in Boaz's response. Let's read again verses 10 through 13. So Ruth just goes all out. She proposes, and this is what Boaz says, verse 10. He said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
you have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Okay, now listen to this though. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. So lie down until the morning. First of all, it's crazy. Boaz says, okay, I'll marry you. Just on the spot. Imagine that. I mean, you're waking up. Who are you? Okay, I'll marry you, right? Like, that's amazing. And then as we're reading the story, we're just, as the reader, we're like, yes, this is awesome. It's happening. And then verse 12 comes along, and in the middle of it, there's this word, yet. Like, imagine in the middle of a proposal, the, the guy kneels down, and he's proposing, and, and she says, yes, uh, but there's this one thing. It's not really what you want to hear in the middle of a yes, but... That's exactly what Boaz does. He says, there's a redeemer nearer than I. You see, Boaz knew Ruth's situation. He knew Naomi's situation. He knows he's a relative. He knows the situation going on. And, and he also has done his research to know that he is not first in line for Ruth. And even though he may, as is so clear love or at least admire the character and person of Ruth, he knows it would not be okay for him to pass over this other man who technically had the right, who was a closer relative to Naomi than he would. And this is so good. The author of this story is so masterful because it's like um, when you have a good storyteller, you're watching a movie, you're reading a story, you get these heartstrings and you spend all this time with this character and you get these heartstrings and you spend all this time with this character and then some other character shows up who you've never seen and instantly you're like, I don't like them. I, these are my characters. That's exactly what he does. It's like, you, you're like, Boaz, oh yeah, Boaz, Ruth, oh yeah. Wait, there's some other guy? Like, who's this other guy? We don't even know his name. What, he's gonna marry Ruth? Like, no, that's not the way the story is supposed to go. Like, we feel that. The author is brilliant. We just know this is not the way the story is supposed to go. We don't need, who is this guy? We can feel the tension as the reader. Imagine being Boaz. Imagine being Ruth. These were real humans in the middle of a real marriage proposal. And even after it was yes, Boaz says, but I can't marry you yet. There's this other guy who has the right to marry you. We can just feel that tension. We feel that desire. And I want us to notice this. Boaz isn't just being a man of integrity like, okay, you know what? The Bible says that in, in, in Deuteronomy 25, it explains this idea of kinsman redeemer. And if a, if a man dies, his brother is to come and marry the widow so that the name and the land would perpetuate itself that's true. That's, that is what's going on here. But it, but it never says in the Bible, there's a specific order. It's never explicitly saying first the oldest brother and then the second brother. It never says, you know what, the, the uncle comes before the cousin. It never lays the details out. What is more likely than Boaz simply trying to obey God, he's, oh, even, he's even willing to have integrity with his community. This was simply just what was socially upright in his culture. He's saying, if I were to marry you and we didn't do this right, like the community would not be okay with it. And, and this is, you guys, this is amazing, uh, an amazing display of integrity. Because when we think about integrity, we often, as Americans, think, what's like the lowest bottom line integrity I have to get away with, right? Like, what's the closest I can get? What is it? If the Bible doesn't explicitly say it, then I can do it. We often ask, how close, how far can I go? You know, a dating relationship all the time. You know, well, how far can we really go? We ask these questions. How, you know, okay, these, all these substances are being legalized. Okay, so, so how close can I get? And what is actually, we often just try to push off our integrity. And Boaz is going in the opposite direction. It's like, not only am I going to be a man of integrity before God, I'm even willing to have integrity before other people. If someone else doesn't think that it's right, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do it right. We see this idea of Christian maturity and integrity in the New Testament. When the apostle Paul, he doesn't sit around arguing, you know what, how much can I get away with? I'm free in Christ. I should be able to. He goes the opposite direction. How much can I give up? 
to, to hold my integrity and to love those around me. Boaz and, and Paul have this maximal idea of integrity. Not how much can I get away with, but, but how, how can I hold on to my integrity even to a far extreme? Even, even if, it's, if, I'm, if I'm risking losing something, I will uphold my integrity. You see, integrity is never tested until it costs us something. And Boaz is even willing to lose a future spouse to simply be a man of integrity. He's thinking, do you know what? That guy would provide for Ruth and Naomi. That would be okay. We can feel, that's not his first choice. He even says, you know, if he does it, good. But by God, I will redeem you if he doesn't. There's all this emphasis. Like you can feel he wants it, but he's willing to be a man of integrity. And how often are we, as the people of God, tempted to sacrifice our integrity because we're in a hard place, right? Maybe it's financial integrity. Maybe it's our sexual integrity. Maybe it's our integrity towards substances. You know, it's, we're in these difficult places and we're being pressed. How often are we tempted to sacrifice our integrity? And church, I'll say this. If we have failed the test of integrity, as so many of us have, we run to Jesus, who was perfectly steadfast under trial and temptation. And when Satan came and offered him the kingdom of the world, if only Jesus would just bow down to him, Jesus held fast. And when Jesus was hours from the cross, agonizing over the fact that he was going to become sin and experience the, drink the cup of the wrath of God for the sins of the world, his integrity held fast. And it was on the cross when he was being mocked, if you are really the son of God, save yourself, pull yourself off of the cross. He could have done that. Yet he was willing to obey God and hold his integrity and suffer for our sin for our lack of integrity. And because of Christ's integrity, like this spotless lamb, we and our lack of integrity can be forgiven. But then let's not forget, church, that we have been filled with the spirit of God and we've been given the word of God and we are able to obey God. May we be a people that's willing to uphold our integrity, even if it's gonna cost us something. That is simply what it is to follow Jesus, to trust that his word and his ways are better than our ways. His wisdom is, is, is better than my own wisdom and his desires and expressions of them are better than my desires and what I would want. And, and let's not forget that it's better. It's better. Jesus's ways are better. Integrity is always a better way, even if it's a sacrifice in the, in the moment. Because what's the alternative? That, that we would gain something and lose our soul? No, church, would we never give up our integrity, our doctrinal integrity, when culture and other maybe false doctrines are saying, hey, listen, this isn't that big of a deal. Would we hold on to our integrity? Let us stand fast. That's who we're called to be, people who are full of salt and light, truth for the name and glory of Jesus. And then the third test we see is this. We see the test of waiting. Let's read uh, the last chunk again together. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, and here's the test, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Um, before we, we look a little deeper at this test, I want, I want you to notice one, uh, just this amazing thing in this text. Uh, in verse 16, when Naomi asks Ruth, how did you fare, my daughter? Uh, in Hebrew, that literally what she says is, who are you, my daughter? And, you know, it's obviously a strange question. We, we're pretty, it's pretty clear. Naomi knows who she is. And what she's really getting at is, how did it fare? But, but um, that literal expression 
So it's often translated in for, to help us. This is what she meant. But when she literally says, who are you, my daughter? Um, it's the, the author is giving us this astonishment of Naomi. The sense of, who is this woman? Who, who is this common Moabite that would leave her home, that would stay with me, that would find blessing in the fields? And now here she comes and as we're going to learn, six measures of barley is 80 pounds of barley that was placed on her with all of this barley. Who is this woman? What is the blessing upon her life? And Naomi is soon to see that this woman, a woman from the nations is whom God is going to use to bring Naomi into the family line of David, the greatest king, and ultimately Jesus, the king of kings. And so she's just astounded. Who is this woman? And then, and then her response to Ruth is this, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. That word wait means to sit down, to sit tight. And uh, one more, this is just such good wording. That word can also mean to settle down or to marry. And so even there, it's this agonizing like, who am I going to marry? I just have to sit here and wait. And this is out of my hands who my husband is going to be. And I just have to sit here and wait. And if we've learned anything about Ruth, it's that she's uh, not very good at sitting still and waiting. She's a go-getter. She's a woman of action. She didn't just lay at Boaz's feet. She just straight up proposes to him. She is not uh, excited about, she's not good at, she hasn't proven herself. If anything, she's going to get something done. To wait is so difficult. And then imagine Ruth's situation. She's widowed in a new land. She's in survival mode. She finds this man who's godly and kind and actually a kinsman redeemer who could provide for her family. She puts it all out there in this crazy, extreme proposal in the middle of the night, and he says, yes. But then she hears, oh, wait, you know, I got to see if I can marry you. And then your mother-in-law just says, well, you got to sit tight. Like, imagine just sitting there. Imagine the thoughts and the emotions going through her heart. And if you have walked with God longer than 24 hours, you know that waiting is one of God's premier tests for his kids. You know this. You have been there. You have read the Bible and you have had experiences where you knew you just needed to wait on the Lord. Where God says, I brought you here. Don't get out of this situation. Don't use your own strength, your own wisdom, your own cunning. I brought you here. Wait on me. And how difficult it is to be led by God into these circumstances where we can do nothing other than wait if we are to be faithful to him. We see this one example, it's all throughout the scriptures, is the Red Sea, where God miraculously just saves his people in the 10 plagues and the Israelites are marching out of Egypt victorious to go to this promised land. But do you know where God takes them? He actually takes them in the opposite direction of the promised land, straight to the Red Sea, and then allows an army to come up behind them so they can do nothing other than wait on the Lord. In fact, I, I, wanna, I, want you to, I want you to hear this. In Exodus chapter 13, listen to what happens. This is the ways of God. It's not always our first choice. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17 says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And I want you to even visualize this. Okay, we have a map. So top left is Egypt. Top right is the promised land. Just even look at the route. Like, really, God? Most of that route is the 40 years of wandering. But immediately, they were, we don't know exactly where they were, but they were somewhere up there in Egypt. And they could have just, there's, you know, there's a, a dry land 
uh, and they could have just walked straight there. But God says, you know what, let's go all the way down to the Red Sea first. And he leads them there. And then look what happens in chapter 14, verse 10. Listen to this. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you done to us? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Oh my gosh, aren't we wicked? Don't we do this? There will be times in our walk with God where we will feel it would be better to not be saved and know the truth and know God. It would be better to just be off in, our, in slavery to our sins, serving sin our master than to, to walk with God and have him bring us to difficult situations. That is what it is to walk with God. But look what Moses says. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. Ruth is having to sit there and wait. And she could never imagine the salvation of the Lord to the extreme salvation and what the Lord would provide through this future marriage. But at that moment, as we often find ourselves, all we can do is sit and wait. Well, we could complain and we could, I guess, run away or maybe we go fight in our own strength or our own power. But to trust the Lord in these circumstances is so often to wait. And if you're like, well, how do I know Am I, if I'm supposed to do something or if I'm supposed to wait? Let me just tell you this. Typically, to just obey this book, it, it's, I'm, I'm not gonna disobey anything God has said. I'm not gonna wander from the commandments of God. I'm not gonna leave what he's clearly said to get out of my difficult circumstances. And, and I've seen this time and time again. When we flee those circumstances, rather than wait, when we flee if God loves us, he's gonna bring us to another Red Sea and be like, are you willing to wait? And then if we flee again, he's gonna bring us to another Red Sea until we learn to wait upon the Lord and to trust him, not get out of it by our might or by our power or strength, by our wisdom and our good ways. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. He'll get you through the Red Sea. He'll, he'll take care of this situation. Ruth, wait on the Lord. And if, if we have failed this test of, of waiting upon the Lord, church, this morning, look to Jesus, who trusted his Father even to the point of death on a cross. And on that cross, he was punished for our fear and our anxiety and our lack of trust. Our own salvation comes not because we frantically found it or we worked for it or we're being rewarded for doing a good job. In fact, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God made us alive. The greatest blessings of God in your life are given as we wait upon him, that, that the glory would go to God and not to us. Grace, not earned by our own righteousness. And sometimes the greatest spiritual discipline, the greatest act of spiritual maturity is waiting on the Lord. And not just physically sometimes, you know, maybe we could grit our teeth and be like, okay. You know, maybe it's internally. It's not anxious thoughts and anxious worries and our heart always running. It's, and it's in the test of waiting, that testing, that time in the fire of waiting that we learn our faith is purified and we learn what Paul calls the secret of being content. You never learn that secret if you never need to learn that secret. 
And look what Paul said in Philippians chapter four. I have learned in whatever situation, and even pause, I love that he learned it, right? It's not natural. It's not easy. He learns through testing. He learns through waiting. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. It's also in these times of waiting, we learn to trust the truth that God is orchestrating our life, that our life isn't really in our hands. If you're a Christian, you are not your own masterpiece. You are not your own workmanship. And that's really good news, right? Like if we, if all of our, if our only hope in this life was to orchestrate all of the things in our own life, like it's stressful and we don't do a good job. But if you are a Christian, the Bible says you are his masterpiece, his workmanship. Look at these verses. In waiting, we learn to trust these types of things. Jeremiah 29, 11, we know this. I know the plans I have for you. Not your plans for you, I have for you. Psalm 138, verse eight, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, that same word, loving kindness, has said, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. He won't forsake his own work. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then finally, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We learn to trust these types of promises when we surrender lordship and sovereignty over to God. We trust God, I am yours. My life is yours. You are Lord. I will trust you. I will obey you. I will wait upon you. You will never forsake a good work that you began. And if God started a good work in you, if you are saved, he will not leave you. He will relentlessly work on you and bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Church, we can trust him. He has proven himself. He, he has proven himself time and time again. That's one of the values of reading his word. If we only base our understanding of God upon our own blurry experiences, we, ha- we have, have 4,000 years of God's faithfulness right here to, to show us this is, look how good he's been. Look at how he's fulfilled his promises to Moses, to Abraham, to David, to his people Israel, to his church. Church, we, in these times of waitings, learn to give our anxieties and our worries, to cast our cares upon him and experience the peace that he gives us. And now to, now to close, I want us, I want us to notice this. It, this. This chapter ends on a cliffhanger. We don't know how it's going to work out. You've probably read the story. You probably know. But the chapter ends, as all these chapters do, with these cliffhangers. We're waiting. What's going to happen? Um, but I want us to see one last test uh, I want to see one, one more character who has faced a test and is now experiencing uh, some blessing for it. Look in verse 16 and 17. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, if you remember Naomi's story, Started with a famine, with no bread, no grain. And then she lost her husband and her children. And then she says in chapter one, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Nothing in her hands, nothing to show for it. And now she's looking at her daughter-in-law, family, who has six measures of barley, 80 pounds of barley on her back. It's a ridiculous amount. It was so much that Boaz had to physically place it on her. And we can tell Ruth was working all day like this is no weak woman. She's carrying 80 pounds of barley on her back. And it's not just barley, but she's now hours away. Naomi is hours away from the potential of a family redeemer who could provide for 
her family and the family name and provide a potential child for her. And we see this truth. With, with the Lord, our hands do not remain empty forever. With the Lord, our hands do not remain empty forever. He may bring us back empty sometimes. He may take away, as Job said, but it never ends that way with the Lord. And notice this. I love the author of Ruth. How many measures of grain was she holding? Six. Uh, Have you heard the, the biblical number of completion? What is that number? It's seven. Right? In six days, God created the earth, but it wasn't complete until God rested on the seventh day. These six measures are saying, yes, this is a nice blessing. This is awesome. God's providing, but, but there's more to come. This is not, this is like Boaz giving a down payment. Like, I'm not done here yet. Six measures, not seven. There's more to come. And we know God is saying that. Yeah, you have some bread. Sure, that's great. Yeah, you're gonna be brought in a family. But if you only knew the child I will bring through this situation. Church, when we walk with Jesus, we've been given a down payment, our salvation, the Holy Spirit, but there is more to come. Our true blessing is coming one day when we see the descendant of the child of this marriage face to face. We're gonna see him. You're gonna see him face to face and a new earth and a new creation and a new body. We may lose some things and we may gain some things in this life. And and I just briefly wanna say this here. Um, We just don't believe the prosperity gospel. We don't believe the six barley is, the six measures of barley is, it's all about this life. It's just, we just believe there's more. God may bless you in this life. He may not bless you in this life. Naomi doesn't get back her husband or her two sons. We, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's always about something greater. It's always about something more. We know to follow Jesus in this life is to lose our life, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and follow him. We don't believe the lie that Jesus will always give you all the bread you want every single day for the rest of your life. We don't believe the lie that Jesus says, I will always heal you no matter what. There would, no one would die. And we know he's not always going to raise someone from the dead, yet we know the resurrection is coming. We know when we spend time with Jesus in his word that that is it's just it's not faithful. That's not the storyline. The story doesn't end in chapter three with some bread. I mean, thank goodness, right? Thank goodness Jesus came to give us more than some bread and a family and a marriage. Goodness gracious, that, that's, this, this is our life is a vapor. Thank God that he has given us his son, eternal life, eternal blessings, life forevermore. That is such a valuable treasure that this church is named reality after the Colossians 2.17. It says this, these are a shadow of the things that, are, that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Every blessing, every bundle of bread, every marriage and family and children are a shadow. And the reality is found in Jesus. That is the good news. The true bread, true joy, true satisfaction who brings us into the true family of God who has extended to us his eternal inheritance as the son of God and says, I will make you my son and daughter forever. That is our hope. That is the true ending of Ruth, as we will see soon. Thank you, God, for your blessings. Thank you for bread and family and houses. But we know he, he may also take them. But that's okay. It's only six measures of barley. There's more coming. Jesus is coming soon. And until then, when we are tested and we face fires and trials, we don't run from them. We trust God is using them to purify us, to teach us to wean us off of this life, to look to him, the true bread for all eternity. 
So Jesus, thank you that you, you, Jesus, are what this is all about, this story is all about. And we even thank you, as James teaches us, we thank you for the various trials that come and the testing that come because it refines and purifies us, makes us more like Jesus. What else would we want, Lord? We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you for other people of God. Lord, we thank you for bread. We thank you for families and children. Lord, but, but we know these things are but a shadow, that the best this life has to offer is but six measures of barley. There's something better coming. We will see you, King Jesus, face to face. And Lord, we thank you now for the greatest gift you have given us your own life on the cross. We thank you for your grace and your mercy over us, Lord. When we fail these tests, as we stumble, as we do from time to time, as we are fearful and don't always obey you, and Lord, as we sacrifice our integrity, um, as we seek to provide for ourselves in ways that, that you forbid in your word, as we are anxious and fearful and fret about Thank you that you say, come to me. I forgive you. I love you. I died for you. I didn't fail these tests so that you could have my righteousness. Thank you for your loving kindness towards us, Lord. You are the true Ruth, the true Boaz, the true Naomi, the true descendant of that marriage and family, Lord. So right now we put our hope in you, Jesus, and we look to you and we worship you, and we say that we trust you. And Lord, if any of us have wandered astray this week, would we come back to you now? We confess our sin to you. Would we receive this communion as a symbol of what you have done for us? Your body was broken, your blood was poured out. Would we confess our sins to one another, that we would be healed of them? Would we not keep these things in the dark? Would we be people of integrity and bring them into the light? Would we worship you, Lord, as your word says, bowing before you, kneeling, shouting, raising our hands, rejoicing, praising, dancing. Would we worship you in spirit and in truth this morning? And Lord, I just ask that even as as we finish this time together, that we would be nourished on the true bread that is Jesus. As we worship, as we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, you would strengthen us in the inner man that we could leave we could leave and obey you. We would be, just take radical risks for the gospel, Lord. We would walk with you and obey you and hold our integrity, that we would wait upon you. We fix our gaze on you now, King Jesus.